Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. With the close of the 2013 legislative session, Governor Gary Herbert takes center stage. Will he sign or will he veto key bills? And there are uh, some where supporters on both sides are uh, trying to put pressure on the governor. Uh, We uh, welcome in Governor Gary Herbert today. We'll uh, ask him about Medicaid expansion, guns, the possible prison move, air quality, the economy, anything else you'd like us to uh, talk about. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Later in the program, a conversation with Senator Todd Weiler from Woods Cross. He uh, has a proposal that we uh, look at changing attorney general from elected to appointed office. And later in the program, a Democratic reaction to the legislative session from Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk. We bring in now Governor Gary Herbert. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. It's great to be with you as always. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. I know this is a busy, busy time. Um, I don't know whether you're going to, uh, you know, reveal any of this on Utah Public Radio. We'd appreciate it if you did. Um, (laughs) Are you going to veto any bills? Probably. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I didn't think I'd get a, a, an answer uh, right here on UPR. Um, let me ask you, first of all, what your thinking is. Uh, you're not going to reveal whether you're going to veto or, or sign this bill, but House Bill 76, as you, you, you've been getting flooded with uh, calls and emails and letters on both sides of this, this would make uh, Utah another constitutional carry uh, gun state, uh, reduce restrictions for concealed weapon uh, permit. Uh, I, I know you've been on record as saying we're okay. Even going into the legislative session, we're okay with the laws we have. Uh, what's your thinking on House Bill 76? Well, I've changed my position on that. I think we have had laws on the books for many, many years that have ser- served the people of Utah very well. Uh, I'm a strong supporter of the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, and uh, following not only our federal constitution, but our Utah constitution. And uh, I believe that we need to protect those rights. Um, but our concealed weapon permit, uh, which has uh, uh, evolved over many years and uh, really uh, back in the 90s, has served us extremely well. In fact, it's been a uh, very much a, an example to other states of a good policy. And so I've just expressed some concern that uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of a thing. It's, it's served us well. I don't know what the change, uh, what the need for this change is. It's, and it's a broad brush change. When I've talked to the sponsor of the bill, the answer was, well, somebody got hassled when they were riding their horse up in the mountains, and they had a storm come up, and he put on his poncho and covered his sidearm, and he was hassled by a fish and game person and said, hey, you need to have a concealed weapon permit to put your coat over your sidearm. And uh, nobody was ticketed, nobody was uh, arrested, but somebody was hassled. And so that's the origin of the of the change. And there may be a better way to address that, is my suggestion to him. But they decided to go ahead with it anyway. So, anyway, that's one that's uh, I'm going to be very careful about. I know people are passionate about uh, Second Amendment rights, and I think they should be. We have people who are passionate on the fact that hey, we don't need to be just a wild and woolly west. And uh, we have people that probably hurt the cause of uh, uh, the Second Amendment. Why carrying AK-47s on their back and walking up and down the malls? Uh, why? Because they can, mm-hmm. and uh, that causes people to be just a little bit nervous. So anyway, it's it's a tough issue. Uh, again, I'm going to analyze this bill no different than I do in other, other bills and read it. I read there's going to be 550 bills we read over the next 20 days, and and we'll analyze each uh, 
legislation uh, by line by line, make sure there's not any unintended consequences, see if it, if it's the purpose of what the bill was designed to do, and then I'll decide whether it's good policy or not and sign or veto. You made reference to uh, a couple of the recent incidents. Uh, it sounds like you would discourage the, this kind of expression of Second Amendment rights, uh, walking up and down the mall, going into stores and such, uh, openly you know, carrying your, your rifle or, or whatever it be. I think it's an in-your-face, uh, I do it because I can, and I don't care if that bothers you or not kind of an attitude. I don't know that that's probably what we as a community at large would like to have. And, and uh, again, I think there are certainly appropriate times and places to be able to carry your uh, weapon, uh, rifle, or gun uh, open. Uh, we are an open carry uh, state, and, and I support that aspect of it. We ought to use a little judgment and wisdom in what we do and how we interact with our neighbors and friends, and particularly in light of some of the things that have happened around the country, it gets people a little bit on edge, and we don't need to contribute to that uh, uneasiness. So use a little judgment and wisdom is all I would counsel. What do you think, what, what are your thoughts, so what should our response, especially as government, be to uh, the recent shooting, especially the one in Sandy Hook? Well, we ought to be appalled. Uh, we ought to be very, uh, uh, you know, discouraged the fact that we have that kind of a culture of violence and uh, and ask ourselves, and what should we do about it? And uh, I don't know that inhibiting people's rights to bear arms is going to be a, a solution, by the way. But I do believe that, uh, you know, in, uh, intervening mental health, uh, making sure that people that uh, have access to guns and the purchase, there's background checks. So people that uh, shouldn't have guns, and I, it could be a, a BB gun, uh, you know, I, if you're mentally ill and stable, if you are, in fact, a criminal, you should not have access to any kind of uh, gun or weapon. So mental health and early intervention is probably a part of what we ought to be thinking about as a society. I think we need to ask ourselves, why do we have a culture of violence? I think it's, uh, you know, Hollywood has some responsibility here. I was uh, pleased to hear Robert Redford during the Sundance Film Festival talk about uh, his own industry. ought to look at themselves and say, are we putting things out there on the screen that probably are contributing to a, a culture of violence? We all get desensitized. We see a lot of blood and gore. I, I'm very concerned about the virtual reality video games that our young people are playing where they get points for actually blowing people up. And, and it's so graphic and so realistic. It probably is hard for some, uh, particularly the young mind, to, to distinguish between the, the reality and, and uh, the animation. And as you desensitize yourself to that kind of culture of violence, it can't be a positive thing on how you look at the real world out there. And again, for somebody who maybe has a, a little bit of instability, it may lead to, in fact, some violence. So I'm concerned about that aspect of it. We all need to be, I think, uh, a little less coarse and a little more sensitive to to uh, each other and uh, a little more kind. And I think that would help us uh, eliminate some of the violence. If you just joined us, we're talking with Governor Gary Herbert. We're talking about the legislative session, some other topics. You're welcome to join this conversation. Uh, Governor can be with us for another uh, five, six, seven minutes, and then he has to go. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And uh, we do have uh, an email. I'll uh, run this past you, Governor. This is from Kylie in Moab. 
Uh, is Governor Herbert going to veto the $300,000 of taxpayers' money to advance the anti-wolf agenda? Instead, he could appropriate uh, those much-needed funds for more important needs, such as much-needed uh, turn lane outside Moab that's extremely dangerous that both San Juan County and UDOT want fixed but uh, don't have the funds. Or how about water and air study in the region since BLM is leasing so much land to oil and gas companies they're threatening our watershed and air. So, uh, Kylie's talking about uh, this, uh, what uh, he or she uh, describes as the anti-wolf agenda, $300,000, uh, uh, Governor. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll take a look at that and see if there's uh, we have some line item capabilities in the budget. So it might be something I can or cannot veto. I, I don't know exactly whether that's possible or not. Let me just say on the wolf thing, that that's there's broad-based support that if you call it anti-wolves, and it's Democrat and Republican alike. I've worked with the Democrat governors in Montana and the Democrat governors in Wyoming, as well as Republican governors in, in Idaho, and very adamant about the infiltration of wolves, which are destroying domestic flock uh, cattle and uh, and uh, really weeding out the, the deer herds and causing great havoc to the north. There's a lot of concern about uh, the wolves migrating south them being listed and uh, presenting significant economic damage to farmers and ranchers as well as uh, you know elk and deer so it's not just a simple issue about we're anti-wolf it's a matter of having a balanced ecosystem out there and making sure that uh, that that balance is maintained and uh, I know if you talk to the governors up in Montana Idaho and Wyoming they would say uh, it's not balanced, and uh, again, this is from Democrats and uh, Republicans alike. They're saying this is really an issue that we can't let get out of hand. So um, I, I think we're handling the wolves issue correctly in Utah and working with people in rural Utah that have a significant concern and and some skin in the game. But uh, we'll take a look at it, make sure that money's being spent appropriately. For the other issues, there's always a lot of issues. We just run out of money. Mm. You know, it's it's a matter of how right. you prioritize. And uh, and we're putting a lot of money into roads and interchange. We're spending a lot of money on the air quality issues and, and trying to do what we can in all parts of the state. You know, we just completed a $4 million airshed study out in the Uinta Basin. Mm. And uh, so there's certainly a lot of needs out there and uh, and just finite numbers of dollars to go around. We're talking with Governor Gary Herbert, and uh, Governor, the phones are lighting up for you here. We have a couple of calls, uh, so we'll try to get these in, and I know you have to go pretty soon. 1-800-826-1495 is the number, or you can uh, reach us at upraxcess at gmail.com. Josh in Cache County is up next. Uh, thanks, Josh. Go ahead with oh, your question or comment. Thank you. Hello, Governor. It's good to have Hi, you Josh. on the line. Um, we've, we in Cache Valley here are being kind of held hostage by the federal government. I don't know if we have any state sovereignty or you can intervene somewhere, but we're being told that we aren't entitled to our uh, highway dollars if we don't do emissions, emissions testing here in this valley. And, uh, <laughs> so, so it seems like that maybe, I don't know if there's such a thing as state sovereignty, but I know that, that they've got a huge new building for the Department of Environmental Quality there in Salt Lake with four to 500 people employed there. And if you count that up, the number of employees per county, that's quite a, in each county. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if there's a way to uh, kind of defund that or scale it back a little bit and have some kind of a... Uh, we're being told emissions testing or, or nothing. 
Thanks, it's thanks, Josh. We'll, we'll get the Thank governor you. to answer that. Thank you, uh, Josh. It's a great question, and actually, I've lived through this once before when I was a county commissioner in Utah County, and uh, we've explored every opportunity that there was to just ignore the feds or to change them to lawsuits. Um, Unfortunately for us, I think, uh, and, and maybe it's not totally unfortunate because there are concerns about air quality that cross borders. And so, you know, the bad air in uh, one state can drift to, and become the bad air in a neighboring state. You know, air doesn't know boundaries. And so there's a legitimate concern. Under the Clean Air Act of 1990, power has been given by the Congress to the EPA. And through rules and regulations, they impose these upon us with the good intention of cleaning up the air, making sure that we have, uh, you know, quality air that's not a health hazard and, and not an aesthetics problem for us in our communities. And that's what's happening up in, in Cache Valley. We're trying to make sure that we intervene and work collaboratively with your Cache County Council up there and your local mayors and city people to find ways where we can address the pollution. We cannot just ignore it. We've got to, in fact, address a and develop a plan going forward to clean up the air. Part of that is, uh, at least the proposal, is to have some kind of emissions testing. We have emissions testing in other parts of our state. We not, may not like it, but it is a simple and easy and pretty cost-effective way to, in fact, uh, clean up the air. Most of the air problems we have along the Wasatch Front and up in Cache Valley come from tailpipes. Not from industry. We have certainly concerns with industry and business out there too, but 60% comes from tailpipes. So we've got to address it. The power comes from the Congress. We do have state sovereignty, but there are some areas that the Congress has said we have regional responsibility and they've empowered the EPA. So we'll help run interference with the local people trying to come up with a solution, but we cannot ignore the dirty air. Uh, Governor, uh, I know uh, we scheduled for about 15 minutes. Can you stay another five minutes? We've got I another can, caller. I uh-huh. uh, appreciate that. Let's stay go to... Uh, Let's stay till 930. Oh, okay, great. You, Tom. Great. Uh, appreciate that, Governor. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and the Governor uh, staying on for another 10 minutes. So you could we, fit your call in or email in as well. Tom in Logan is next. Uh, thanks, Tom. Go ahead with your question. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Governor, thanks for being with us today. Um, question about Medicaid expansion. I know that the I was uh, kind of incensed that the legislature tried to tie your hands on this thing. Um, the premise that they're citing is if the federal government reneges on its um, promise to pay for the 10 years, et cetera, or participate in the cost of the expansion uh, is, is why they were with the concern of the legislature. Can you cite any uh, situations uh, that you've had with the federal government making promises to fund something and they renege in the middle of it? Well, I don't know of anything specifically that comes to the top of my mind where they've reneged. I think the concern is that um, when you're borrowing 40 cents out of every dollar you spend, that there's going to come a day of reckoning. And uh, the concern is how long can we sustain this profligate spending uh, and uh, not have a, a problem that occurs. Uh, people are concerned about a double-dip recession. and We've gone through some budget cuts of significant proportion here in the state. Uh, when I first came in as governor near four years ago, we had to have some significant, a billion dollars out of our budget. So there's, you know, I think it's wise to be cautious. 
there, it's not only just the money coming from the, uh, Washington, D.C., though, on the Medicaid expansion. It's also money that we have to generate ourselves. And even though uh, the proposal is for the first three years 100% of federal funds will be used for the Medicaid expansion, there are still administrative costs and other things that we will have to come up with here at, uh, in Utah to, to help administer the Medicaid expansion. And then after three years, you have to pick up uh, you know, 10% of it yourself going forward. That's not an insignificant number. Original estimates were about $200 million over 10 years, maybe $250 million. And so that's a $20 million punch every every year. That's one of the reasons why I'm trying to get a study completed that, that looks at all aspects of it so we know what the facts are, not just speculation, not just, you know, kind of a cursory review, but a detailed analysis of what the cost to the benefits going to be with Medicaid expansion, uh, what our costs and our benefits will be, and also if we don't do it, what is our cost to the benefit for those who will be disenfranchised with the Medicaid expansion? And is there another way to do it? Uh, we, you know, we, we probably need to get away from the mentality, I think, as a society to think that whatever the problem is, that the government is the solution. There are probably other ways to do it. Maybe it's a combination of things. But we'll, that study is underway. Uh, there's some issues that they've neglected to look into. I've asked them to go back and take a fresh look. We'll probably have that report here in the next uh, you know, month to two months, and then we'll make a decision as far as what's in the best interest of the people of Utah and the taxpayers. This is uh, too big of an issue to be rushed into. I'm not going to play politics with it. This has nothing to do with ideology. Uh, it has everything to do with people's health and what we can afford and what's in the best interest of the taxpayers of Utah. Uh, thanks, Tom, for the call. We're talking with Governor Gary Herbert, uh, and he can go to the bottom of the hour and uh, then has to move on. So we have another five minutes with the governor. 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com. We do have another caller, Dave in Salt Lake City. Uh, Dave, go ahead with your question. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Hello, Governor Herbert. Thank you, Dave. Um, I, uh, first off, want to applaud your efforts on clean air and such. And I hope your efforts will continue to clean up Utah's dirty air with um, a veto of House Bill 23. Now, House Bill 23 is one that's going to get rid of the clean air um, incentive, uh, the incentive to buy clean air vehicles by taking away that decal for those cars in the V lane. We've got a, the issue is that we have to, that uh, the, Federal mandate says we have to eliminate more single occupancy vehicles in the HOV lane, and so House Bill 23 took away that in air vehicles, but it leaves in place completely the toll vehicles. Now, I think that's a mistake. I think that's the wrong way to go. The HOV lane is designed for cleaner air overall, not for some guy in a giant SUV who pays 50 cents. Um, it, the, the cost of that toll program doesn't even close to cover the cost of administration or the initial setup. So I'm really hoping you're, that you uh, will keep the clean air as a priority. Thanks, Dave. Uh, uh, get response yeah, from thank you, Dave. And, and I'll take a, a real hard look at that. I'm aware of the, of the concern and the conundrum that we have there, and I think we need to incent people. Uh, to do the right thing and to do good things and and uh, and uh, not to uh, circumvent that 
potential with the HOV lane. So I'm going to take a hard look at that and see what the pros and cons are. There's different arguments on that, and I'm going to take time to, to go through that just like the other bills and see if the intent is realized in the legislation itself and if it's good policy. Uh, let me just say along that same line, though, there's a lot of things we're doing. Uh, not only the reconstruction of I-15 and other roads to make sure that we have less congestion, so we have less idling and and cleaner burning uh, automobiles, but uh, we're meeting with all the point sources, for example, along the Wasatch Front from industry to help them develop plans where they reduce their emissions over the next uh, five years to, to help, uh, again, with pollution. We are doing, uh, we passed about 22 different rules, laws, and regulations since last October, uh, working with industry and commercial to, in fact, help reduce emissions. We're including uh, working with uh, like a Kennecott, Holly uh, Refineries, and others to have best technology available uh, so that even though there's some uh, they're increasing volume. They're reducing uh, pollution with new technology. Uh, so there's been a significant effort uh, throughout the state to, to help reduce pollution. It's not just a, an aesthetics thing. It certainly is a quality of life and a health concern for me and for many. And also impacts our ability to grow economically down the road. So, uh, again, anything we can do to get people to uh, to uh, be sensitive to what they're doing with their automobiles in particular, uh, we have a significant program now to incent people to use compressed natural gas and get away from gasoline and petroleum. Our fleets, we have passed a, a bill which is going to have our fleets uh, here, buses and others, use compressed natural gas. There's incentives there. So we're all working together here to try to find the right combination that will clean up our air and still allow us to have a viable economy. Finally, Governor, the the prison move is on a lot of people's minds. I think the the legislature uh, voted to to study that. Uh, I don't know if you're leaning one way or the other. Well, I think it's time to take a hard look at it. I mentioned it in my state of the state address that uh, uh, let's not just uh, you know uh, uh, nibble around the edges. Let's get into it and find out whether or not it's viable to consider a relocation of the prison. That's motivated by the fact we've got to spend about fifty or sixty million dollars on the old prison. If we don't do anything else, and so the question is, do you put $50 million bucks into an old prison, or do you put $50 million into a new prison where you can have better architecture, better layouts, uh, have less labor-intensive, uh, have better programming to help not just warehouse people, but actually rehabilitate them and help them become productive members of society? That's the motivation, is the public safety aspect of this. So taking a look at that and see, is there a better location or another location? And as a byproduct of that, we can open up what most people would argue is the most valuable pieces of real estate we have in our state between our two largest counties of Salt Lake and Utah County, which is becoming kind of a high-tech area. So the win-win that can come out of this ought to be analyzed and ought to be done methodically. This is a big deal, and it will have ramifications for generations to come. So there's a committee that's been put together that's going to study it. We're going to make sure it's open and transparent with a lot of public input. And then once we get the information, then we'll be able to move together with the executive branch, our office, and the legislature, and determine, again, what's in the best interest of the taxpayers of Utah. Uh, so just briefly, Governor, uh, what's your timeline on decisions for uh, signing or vetoing bills? Well, I've got 20 days from the from the last uh, Thursday to, to do that. I Again, I have a role to play. My role is really one of kind of break. 
for a runaway legislature and where they sometimes don't get it right. Uh, we have differences of opinion, and uh, and my role is either to sign them into law, which we do most of the bills, and most of the bills, by the way, up here pass nearly unanimously uh, by partisan in their efforts, you know, just the technical corrections or modifications and improvements most everybody agrees with. A few controversial bills that you've asked about here today, and there's a few others, but I either sign them into law or I veto them or I can let them go into office and into law without my signature. And we'll be spending this next week uh, very intensely reading through all the legislation. Again, it's 550 bills we'll have to read, understand, and then make a decision on. But I have a deadline, and that's 20 days from last Thursday to get this completed. We will all be paying attention, I'm sure. Governor Gary Herbert has been our guest in this part of Access Utah. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. And uh, following a break, we're going to uh, continue a discussion looking at uh, some legislative topics uh, with uh, Senator Todd Weiler. He's up next. Uh, he has a proposal that the legislature look at changing attorney general from elected to appointed office. And uh, later in the program, we'll get a Democratic reaction to the uh, legislative session with uh, Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk from Salt Lake City. Following the break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the USU Credit Union, serving members with online bill payer, web teller services, and mobile banking for around-the-clock account access. Information is at usuccu.org. Support also comes from your local office of AARP Utah, a nonpartisan organization helping people 50 and over improve their lives through its advocacy for health care reform, social security, and consumer protection in Utah. Information is at aarp.org ut. And support for Access Utah is provided by the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through the humanities online at utahhumanities.org. Thanks for staying with us on Access Utah, and we bring in now uh, State Senator Todd Weiler, a Republican from Woods Cross. Uh, he wants the legislature to look at whether Utah's Attorney General should be appointed rather than elected, and we uh, welcome in uh, Senator Weiler. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, so why do you want the legislature to, to look at this? Well, you know, this stems, in my mind, all the way back to the days of Mike Levitt and Jan Graham, and they had some very uh, public and epic uh, battles, at least of words. And uh, I think as a result of that, the the legislature changed it so the governor could hire his own general counsel um, because those two just didn't get along. Of course, they were from different political parties. And I know back in 1995 they were talking about this issue, and it was raised just two years ago by one of my colleagues, Steve Urquhart from St. George. Um, but, you know, I think with some of the allegations that have been flying around in the media, it's caused me to, to question whether it's good policy for the state to ask our attorney general to run around and try to raise a million dollars or more to run a statewide campaign. Um, and uh, it, what hasn't been lost to me is we also have a state auditor and state treasurer uh, who are running around, and, and they're basically raising pocket change. I mean, nobody's donating to them. And yet a lot of people are donating a lot of money to the attorney general. And so I think, um, you know, that that begs the question, why are they willing to donate to the attorney general but not to the auditor or not to the treasurer? Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I, I'll let your uh, listeners draw their own conclusions on that. But I just want to have the discussion, is this a good policy? We've got seven other states that appoint their attorney general either from the state legislature or the governor. 
the Supreme Court in one instance. We have the District of Columbia that appoints uh, an attorney general. We have, uh, you know, the President of the United States that gets to select his own attorney general. Should we be doing that in Utah? That, that's a discussion I want to engage in over the next uh, nine or ten months. So your main concern is is, is the money and, and perhaps, it, uh, I guess, especially the appearance that raising money for the office would would uh, bring in. And I think one of the accusations against uh, the attorney general some, from some businessmen is is that when he was raising money for, for his boss, uh, Mark Shirtleff, in his last election campaign, that uh, they say that... Uh, that John Swallow gave some assurances to them. Of course, that's it's not, well, and not proven. Those are reports in the media. I, yeah. I honestly don't know if those are true or false. We're going to let you know federal investigators figure that out, and 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 uh, you know I'm I'm not part of that process, and I'm not trying to get in the way of that process. But I do think that there's there's been enough discussion in the media um, that I think now is the appropriate time to say is is this moving forward? This isn't about you know John Swallow or any other one person. Moving forward, is this the policy that we want in the state? Because once you have two candidates in a row who've raised that much money, I think that the expectation there is if you're going to be attorney general, you have to raise over a million dollars. And and I just I just don't know that that's 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 what we want. Uh, that that is uh, symbolic of our Utah values. When you have the chief law enforcement of the officer running around asking people for large sums of money. Now, when uh, your colleague, Senator Urquhart, brought this up, uh, I think this was in 2011, uh, the Attorney General at the time, Mark Shirtleff, called it a lousy idea. Uh, he said his, his objection was that uh, this office should be independent, sort of a check and balance. Yeah. And, you know, that, that is a, that's a valid argument. And, and I would ask, you know, I, I guess I would say, well, what about the other seven states that I mentioned and, and, and the federal government? I, I don't think it's, it's not working in those states. And, you know, we... Um, you know, and I, I, that should be part of the discussion. I want your listeners to know this is not a change that the legislature can make. This is this is the Utah Constitution. So, if these discussions are productive, I will consider running the bill a year from now, and the bill would ask uh, for this issue to be placed on the November 2014 ballot, and then the voters would decide if they want to continue selecting the attorney general or if they think it should be appointed. Now, if if we do that proposal, we'll have to figure out who would do the appointing. And one idea that I like, if we're going to make a change, uh, it would be to have uh, a bipartisan committee like we do with judges right now, forward like five names to the governor. The governor interviews them, picks one, and then has, has that name confirmed by the Senate. So we have a lot of, you know, participation. But I'm hoping that we can actually get better lawyers uh, um, in that process as well. Because there's a lot of lawyers, I'm a lawyer, that don't want to have to raise that money and go through the political process, but would, would make excellent attorney generals. Uh, have you have you heard reports from those other states? It's it's a minority of states, but it's I don't know five or seven states that, that currently do appoint their attorney general. Good experiences, I'm assuming there that uh, make you hopeful to going forward. Well, I think uh, I think overall it's been good, and that's when that's why I've asked for this to be studied in the interim. I'd like to have some people from those other states come to Utah and tell us about why they made their changes and and what their results have been, and let the legislature hear that. Let the let that air it out in public. I'd like to get public comment. I hope I get more public comment than just the reader boards on the Tribune, because <laughs> nobody seemed to like my idea there, but they, <laughs> they like to bash a lot of stuff. But uh, I, I don't think it should be a knee-jerk reaction, but I do think uh, I think it's a discussion worthy of, uh, of having right now. I wonder if I could uh, pull out a little more broadly, get your general reaction to the legislative uh, session. Sure. Um, I think it was a great session, and 
you know, um, this is this was just my second session. I replaced Dan Lillingquist a year and three months ago when he resigned, and so um, I'm kind of a newbie up there. But uh, uh, it, for me, it was it was my second session, so I actually knew what I was doing as opposed to my first session, and I really enjoyed it. And there's been a few articles I've read that have focused on the bills that didn't pass. And I would say, from my perspective, I think this session is a lot more interesting if you look at the bills we didn't pass as opposed to some of the ones that we did. And when I say that, we had a sales tax on the Internet, Senate Bill, Senate Bill 226, which passed the Senate and died in the House. We had, uh, you know, the um, the preschool bill um, that Aaron Osmond ran. Um, we, there, there are five or ten bills that were really got a lot of debate that didn't ultimately end up passing. As you know, and I've been, I talked to the governor earlier in the program about the uh, House Bill 76, which did pass. And, uh, there's uh-huh. there are, there's pressure on the governor on both sides on this. Um, yes. I, I don't know where, which side you come down on this. <laughs> well, you know, House Bill 76 was watered down, and that has angered some and, and placated others. But you know, you can you can if you we've always been an open carry state, so you can you can put a gun in your belt and and walk around if you want to, and you'll make some people uncomfortable. So this says basically, if you if you're doing that and it's unloaded, you can put a, a raincoat on or a coat on, and you're not going to become a criminal for putting a coat over your gun that's in your belt. And that's all the bill does. If the gun's loaded, you still have to have a concealed weapons permit. I think there's really good arguments on both sides. Um, I um, I voted for the bill on the floor, and, and if it comes back um, on the floor for a veto override, I'll, I'll likely vote for it again. Um, you know, most of my constituents have contacted me. The vast majority have wanted that. But I think you have to see that as a compromise as opposed to five other gun bills that were proposed and didn't pass. And, um, you know, we have a president of the United States that has a lot of people afraid that he's going to come and take their guns away. And so there, this is a knee-jerk reaction to that knee-jerk reaction, which was to the shooting in Newton um, and uh, also in Aurora and the other shootings. So we have a lot of people reacting. And, um, you know, th- this, isn't, uh, this isn't the worst possible change, but... Uh, I understand the governor, and I respect the governor when he says he likes the law the way it is. So it will be an inter- interesting to see what happens in the next uh, 45 days. Well, Senator, I want to maybe have you weigh in on uh, another uh, hot topic, which is whether or not Utah should expand Medicaid. The governor says he's waiting for a study. Uh, some people are saying, well, the study's already in. But in any case, he's going to, to take a look at that. Uh, what are your position on this part of uh, the Affordable Care Act, which the Supreme Court uh, gave discretion to the states on? You know, I, I'm glad you asked. I sit on the Social Services Appropriations Committee, so this is one of my issues in the legislature. I listened to the Supreme Court arguments a year ago. I, I've read the decision. I probably spent 100 to 150 hours in the last year on this issue, and I was the, actually the person, you know, we had a another knee-jerk reaction in the House the last week of the session. They sent us over a bill <clears throat> that would have prohibited the governor from expanding Medicaid. I took that bill. I rewrote it. I kind of got it back on its track passed it out of the Senate unanimously, and we passed it with a two-thirds majority in the House. And, and the rewrite of that bill says the governor can't expand it until he gets those studies back. We've got a task force. We've got the PCG private study that's almost done. And, um, and also, it, my bill, the rewrite of Senate, uh, House Bill 391, makes sure that if the governor does elect to expand it, that the, um, that the legislature is going to have a check on that power because we control the budget. Um, and so I, 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 you know, one of my proudest accomplishments of this session is rewriting 391 and, and getting it to a rational discussion so that we can make an informed, data-driven decision. Um, I don't know what the governor's going to do. My, my guess is is that uh, if he was going to not expand it, he that would have been easy to say by now. So I think he's seriously looking at expanding it. 
And if he does, I, I probably, I, I would guess right now that the legislature would say, no, we're not going to fund that. But again, like 76, this is a, this, this will be, you know, for political um, pundits like me, this is, this is fascinating stuff. This is like the Super Bowl uh, unfolding in slow motion. Yeah, and the clock is ticking. Yeah, uh, it is. We appreciate your time. Senator Todd Weiler, Republican from Woods Cross, thank you so much. We're going to take another brief break, and when we come back, we will get a reaction to the legislative session from uh, Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, Democrat from Salt Lake City, following the break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the USU Credit Union, serving members with online bill payer, web teller services, and mobile banking for around-the-clock account access. Information is at usuccu.org. Support also comes from your local office of AARP Utah, a nonpartisan organization helping people 50 and over improve their lives through its advocacy for health care reform, social security, and consumer protection in Utah. Information is at aarp.org ut. Support is also provided for Utah Public Radio by the Chamber Music Society of Logan, continuing their 32nd season with the Linden Quartet playing the music of Schubert and Mendelssohn tonight at 7.30 in the USU Performance Hall. Information is at cmslogan.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're taking a look at the legislative session, which ended last week. We talked earlier in this program with the governor, Governor Gary Herbert, he has 20 days from the end of the session to sign the bills, so let bills go to a law without his signature or to veto bills. Hundreds are lobbying on either side for the governor to either veto or, or sign House Bill 76. That's the concealed carry permit restriction loosening bill. Also, Medicaid expansion is drawing a lot of attention. And there are some other hot-button topics. We're going to run those past Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, Democrat from Salt Lake City, and some other issues. Welcome back to the program, Representative. Hi, hi, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Let me just get your general reaction from a Democratic perspective, uh, successes and, uh, and pieces of legislation you wish would have passed. Oh, boy. Oh, got, got a lot, lot of work done. Um, you know, our priorities at the beginning of the session for the Democratic caucus for both the House and the Senate were to focus on um, initiatives that help keep Utah competitive. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the past few years about Utah being the best managed state. And I think that during the recession, uh, we had to make some really hard decisions that impacted Utah families and especially our state workforce and our ability to be responsive to our citizens. And so our focus was to kind of recapture that brand of, of being best managed and try to find ways to keep ourselves competitive and to ensure that everybody in the state benefits from the abundance that might be moving forward as the economy improves. Um, so our focus was uh, in four areas. It was on uh, great schools, clean air, safe and healthy communities, and making sure that we uh, keep our government transparent, honest, and open. Um, so, you know, the good thing was because of, there was an uptick in terms of revenues, um, even with the cloud of the sequester in front of us, um, we were able to get some things moving forward and placed in the budget that were priorities for us. Um, those would include DEQ analysts that the Department of Environmental Quality had wanted to recapture, um, funding for a Great Salt Lake uh, intervention program, um, uh, primary care grants, some money there. 
uh, money for the Baby Watch Early Intervention Program, which helps um, our youngest disabled members of our community. And, of course, the thing that we were very pleased with, that uh, I think there was a consensus across the board from both Republicans and Democrats, was the 2% uh, weighted pupil unit percentage increase, which was desperately needed. I want to uh, pick up on air quality. Uh, as you know, it's an extraordinary grassroots movement, uh, uprising on air quality, um, protests on Capitol Hill and in other areas of the state, and uh, uh, I think because the air quality was just so bad this, this last year. Uh, right. what, what remains to be done, in your view, especially with regard oh, to boy. government? Still, still, still a, lot of, a lot to do. We made a niche in, um, in this area of public policy. Um, my colleague Patrice Arendt uh, ran legislation and was successful that uh, encourages or actually puts in place a request from all state agencies, including higher ed, totally across the spectrum, to provide plans on how they can be more effective in uh, decreasing their carbon footprint. So putting together plans for telecommuting for their employees, for uh, opening hours and public hours that would navigate uh, being able to uh, provide services effectively but not have maybe so many employees come in, Um, those types of things, just trying to look at how we can be more efficient and effective via our state agencies uh, and being responsive to the needs of our community related to air quality, making sure that our state employee workforce isn't negatively impacted by the amount of time we expect them to come and traverse back and forth to work, and also how they, uh, you know, even just in facilities efficiencies and those kinds of things. So that bill passed, and then uh, Representative uh, Jack Draxler from your neck of the woods uh, also passed some legislation related to further incentivizing um, CNG vehicles and try to expand the options that citizens have in terms of the type of vehicles that they drive, encouraging them to purchase and to utilize a lower emissions vehicles in their transportation plans. So those are a couple things that were bonuses. Um, we had a number of other ideas. My colleague, Representative Jill Briscoe, was running legislation that would have allowed individuals to have free UTA passes in January, February, and also July during the times of the year that we have probably the worst air pollution. That one didn't make much headway, and so it's a discussion starter. Um, Same with my legislation that would have asked the DAQ, actually, Department of Air Quality, or given them the latitude to implement regulations that were more ardent than those imposed by uh, the EPA and the Clean Air Act. Um, that one didn't get very far. I, I had that rolled that out a bit late in the session. It's more of a challenging hurdle to jump over. Uh, but again, good discussion starters. And given the fact that air quality is an issue that we will be further exploring via the Economic Development Task Force that was set up by the legislature last year. Um, last year we started doing work. This year I see more. Uh, proposals possibly coming to the forefront during the interim as the Economic Development Task Force meets since air quality is part of their charge. We're talking on this part of the program with uh, Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, Democrat from Salt Lake City, and uh, I believe Representative Assistant Minority Whip Uh uh, in the leadership in the House. And here's your uh, opportunity to uh, get a question or comment through to uh, the representative. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Perhaps there's uh, a bill you were particularly interested in and are uh, pleased it passed or disappointed it didn't. Uh, 
uh, perhaps you uh, would urge the representative to uh, to help run that next year, 1-800-826-1495, or email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We have another five or six minutes uh, left uh, here in the program. Another very hot topic and uh, pressure is being put on the governor regarding um, expansion of Medicare, and, uh-huh. uh, Medicaid, excuse me. Uh, and there, there was hot debate on House Bill 391, which was uh, changed and is essentially allowed to die in the Senate, um, about cost. Uh, the, right. uh, the, the, the sponsor of the bill is very emotional, and he says this is going to bankrupt Utah. I'm, I'm not using his words. Um, uh-huh. too, too high a cost. On the other hand, proponents of Medicaid expansion say this will save Utah money. Where do you come down on this issue? Oh, you know, I definitely see this as an opportunity that is right in front of us, and we should be taking advantage of it sooner rather than later. I actually ran a, a piece of legislation, HB 153, that would have encouraged the governor to move forward with the expansion and uh, articulated how we as a legislature could support that financially. Um, it didn't get it didn't get legs underneath that. I wanted to be able to present that and then pull back on it so that we could wait for the PCG study, um, as was mentioned by Senator Weiler, who was on before me. Um, but then it kind of got co-opted and, and uh, turned around and, and wrapped into HB 391. Um, within my bill, within HB 153, we were able to, uh, the fiscal analyst for the state legislature was able to uh, find somewhere to the tune of $5 million of savings the first year and $15 million savings the second year of implementing the Medicaid expansion during those three years that we're allowed to do that. Now, notably, there are going to be costs after the first three years when we, as a state, have to start taking more of a share of that match. Um, But what my hope was is uh, in my bill, I had proposed that savings that we would accrue as the state, we would roll into the Medicaid restricted growth account um, and instead of spending it on other things within the general fund, and then that money could have gone towards any additional costs uh, that the state might incur. Um, if you look at what's happening in states surrounding us, they're already starting to see the benefit of moving towards the expansion in terms of workforce development plans for uh, growing their workforce within the healthcare sector. Um, the savings that we reap in terms of individuals not having to go to the emergency room, which is much more costly. And oftentimes those individuals wait until their condition is much more severe, whereas if they had had Medicaid coverage and were able to go to a primary care physician, maybe their situation wouldn't be as, as, as bad. And um, you know, it's the, we have to look at what those savings are, which is what I'm hoping that the PCG study will will articulate is more system-wide savings. Um, you know, things like, what, you know, what do we pay as a society for individuals that have to declare medical bankruptcies because they're not aptly covered? Um, what are our costs to our counties? Um, Salt Lake County came forward with a resolution that was supported by both Republicans and Democrats on their county council. It was unanimous, encouraging the state, imploring the state to please move forward with the expansion because they saw the benefit to their budget in terms of the monies that they're already expending via their jail system. Um, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, our jails have become de facto mental health uh, clinics and substance abuse clinics for many of our communities, and the counties are starting to see the benefit of how they can offset the cost that they're already incurring in taking care of the, these individuals, if but for the fact that we would move forward for this with this expansion. So there are a lot of savings that could possibly be reaped here, and so I'm glad that the door swung back open again when it almost looked like it was 
ready to be lost. Um, you know, our, a number of our neighboring states, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, have already stepped forward. Um, what I often like to say are the quote-unquote liberal bastions of Florida and Ohio have also decided to accept the Medicaid expansion because they realize it's just in the best interest of their communities. We just have a couple minutes left. I'm wondering, uh, from your constituents there in Salt Lake City, um, wh- what are you hearing at this point now that the oh, session is done? Of the, on the expansion? Uh, um, yes. Or just, or just in general? On the just to, well, just in general, oh, yes. So just in general. Um, you know, I think many are, are a bit frustrated that we still don't put a bit more effort in, in funding our educational programs. I know that probably the preponderance of my constituents would be comfortable with modest income tax uh, rate evaluations and increases so that we can more aptly fund our educational system. Um, we weren't able to find funding for uh, preparation days for teachers. Those have dropped from 10 days to two and in the past few years, and we were desperately trying to find wherever we could catch money to be able to assure those teachers that they might have some additional time for preparation so that they're more effective and able to help our students. There are things like that that I think my constituents would be willing to make some sacrifices on in order to ensure that our children have more. Um, There was a women's educational initiative that we weren't able to fund, even though this was on the governor's priority list, which we... uh, Again, feel very badly that that didn't move forward when we have the lowest number of women graduating with post-secondary degrees uh, in the nation. Um, there's just so much work that we have let to, left to do in terms of education and in air quality and health areas. And those are kind of those issues that seem to resonate with my constituents, uh, less those that are more of the uh, discussions related to guns and fighting back against the federal government. And uh, we'll leave it there, uh, out of time. Uh, And this continues. Of course, the uh, Utah legislature has uh, several interim meetings uh, throughout the year. Uh, Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, Democrat from Salt Lake City, has been our our guest. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And uh, thanks for listening. Uh, By the way, coming up tomorrow, of course, uh, Sherry Quinn is in with uh, Science Questions, Scientific Topics on Monday. We're going to talk uh, with a couple of keynoters that are coming later in that week uh, for a conference at Southern Utah University. The conference is called Men, Women, and Violence, Everyone Matters. We'll be talking with Michelle Weldon, who's a journalist and author, a professor, and she's author of a uh, memoir, I Closed My Eyes. Uh, She's a victim of domestic violence. Catherine Richardson is also a researcher in this area. We'll be talking about uh, violence against women. How do we solve the problem? That's coming on Monday. For producers uh, Danny Hayes and Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.